Welcome to Off The Fence. I'm James Fox. We're back to talk about what's been going on in news and politics in the UK and a little bit further afield as well. Uh, mainly what we'll be talking about tonight is UK story, so we've got that coming up. If you've not listened to us before, like I said, we're Off The Fence. Soundcloud.com slash Off The Fence might be where you're hearing us right now. We're in a few other places as well. Give us a shout if you're listening. At Off The Fence Talk is where we are on Twitter. So it's good to have you here. I'm James Fox. We've also got another guy sitting next to me. Say who you are. I'm Alex Maskell. It's good to have you back, man. It's good to be back, as ever. We're doing this again. We did actually record another episode this week. That we happened. did. It was destroyed. It was an experiment in like Merzbo-ish harsh, harsh it, noise. It, and it, it went into the desk too hot and uh, it had to be binned. Because I want to hear it. I want, I want to hear what cacophonous it, nonsense I'm maybe exaggerating like. it a little bit. But anyway. Um, you, you made it sound to me like this sounds like a series of trash can lids being beaten together. <laughs> We're almost there. We're almost there. But anyway, uh, if you have joined us for the first time, welcome. We're going to be talking about some funny stories tonight, some more serious ones. We'll be mixing it up. Do you want to just tell me what you're going to be talking about, Alex, first? Uh, Well, I'm going to be talking at the end of the show about President Tayyip Erdogan of Turkey finally declaring a proper all-out offensive uh, against the Turkish uh, enclave of Rojava formed in the north of Syria. And, you know, some of the stuff around that and just how that's just kind of a tragedy. Yeah. We're going to be talking about the ongoing revival of eugenics amongst the Conservative Party thought. They do seem to love it. Yeah, it's coming back in a big way. Firstly, though, some quick mentions, some quick stories we're going to fire through that are worth mentioning. First up, uh, I've got a particular website this this uh, story appeared on. Uh, I'm not going to tell you which one it is because it might give away the crux or the punchline of the story. I'm just going to go straight in with the, the intro to the story. The ex-senior editor of Breitbart News and self-described cultural libertarian Milo Yiannopoulos has just used his live YouTube channel to read out an entire South End News Network story to his thousands of followers and report it as fact. Now, if, if you don't know what South End News Network is, maybe you've heard of, I don't know, let's say The Onion or The Daily Mash in the UK or another UK site that I'm a fan of, News Thump. Uh, South End News Network, just like those websites, is a satirical news website. So the stories on there are not real. It's just comedy. It's just made up stuff that's meant to make you laugh. And here we have, you know, uh, poster boy of the alt-right, Milo Yiannopoulos, uh, reporting this story as fact. Now, do you want to know what the story was? Because Let's go for let's it. Let's go for it. I don't think you'll be able to... It's so good, it, you, you know, yeah. Uh, here's the headline. NHS forced to offer cervical smear test to men after landmark legal case. <laughs> And just remember, this is the guy who is, you know, meant to be an extremely brilliant political operator and debater. Um, I, I, I almost want to give him the benefit of the doubt that he, he he's actually making it a joke. And I'm sure that's how he's going to defend himself on this if he hasn't deleted this video already on YouTube. Uh, but he, he he's, I've watched it. He really acts like he thinks this is legit. Here we go. Here's more from it. Um, here's some red flags from the story. You'd think that any normal person, aside from the, the banner of like hilarious other ridiculous stories on the right-hand side of the website, you think would have been like red flags. But here's some red flags from the actual story. Uh, the man who complained in this about not being offered a cervical smear test, his name was Nathan Grange Volva, a fair trade coffee shop owner, a men's rights activist <laughs> from Leon C. <laughs> it gets better. Uh, the senior doctor in this uh, fictional event was South End Hospital's chief clinician of clinical clinics, Sir Henrietta Fuckwheat. <laughs> and the story ends by saying that men will now be offered cervical smear tests via their rectal cavity. And no, it's, it is obviously 
ridiculous, but somehow this guy with this sort of like uh, feminazi goggles on, this confirms everything I already believe. It's all going wrong. I mean, he, I don't even think it necessarily, I don't, like the news he reports on doesn't need to be true. It can, anyone who believed this when they first heard it, when they hear that it's not true, they'll just go, okay, but it may as well be true. Like it, that, that is an accurate reflection of what the world is like. Because to these people, that's what it is, and so I don't think this is gonna like stop anything. I don't think that. No. I don't think that this is gonna like. I don't think that this. He's. But it's it makes him like he's put a foot wrong. Like. Yeah. I know. Well, to to his fans, it won't look like it. You know, it'll be like, oh yeah, it'll be confirmation yeah. bias, right? And who else matters in this day and age? Like in this day and age, where there is no gatekeeper, there's no need for an audience beyond like the, you know, the very intense support of a niche. That's the media landscape we're living in at the moment. So I don't think this actually is going to matter a jot for Milo beyond credibility with who exactly? Who with, that he needs? It, I mean, I guess it shows to everyone that he thought, uh, yeah, maybe he's a little bit smart in some ways, but he's generally an idiot. This shows me like he's completely an idiot. Sure. To me anyway. I, th- I thought we'd include it. It's behavior that Katie Hopkins indulged for a few years ago anyway, because she fell for the same thing a few yeah, years yeah. ago. Unsurprisingly so. Well, I mean, these people's view of the world is, like, untethered from reality, so it makes sense that the things that would support them the most are, like, deliberate parody that's been misconstrued. Yeah. The next story I'm just going to quickly run through is something a little bit more serious and interesting and, I guess, more um, more data-driven. Uh, it's a report by the Centre for Towns, which is called The Aging of Our Towns, and it, it basically... They go- really couldn't get away with calling themselves the Town Centre, could they? No, they couldn't. <laughs> anyway, uh... It's about, obviously, we've got an aging population in this country, as well as a lot of other Western countries. And obviously, that's going to have an impact on the NHS and how, you know, we fund public services going forward. But what this study breaks down, or this research breaks down, is that it's not just a case of population growth, but population growth in differing ways across the country is, is extremely stark when you look at the numbers um, on a national scale and even further when you break it down on a regional scale. Basically, the population age isn't happening in the core cities of the UK. Um, barely at all. So there's not really much of a rise in uh, over 65s um, in, in their comparison to how many people are of working age in cities like Manchester, Newcastle, London, Bristol, you know, there's the big core cities, Glasgow, Edinburgh, whereas in the smaller towns, the villages and even the large towns, you're getting a massive increase of over 65s and the young, the young population isn't really going up at all. So that has massive implications for you know how we do the NHS if you've got a town where there's just tons more old people who need to use those services and there isn't the you know the people of working age there isn't that there aren't the nurses to work there how's that going to function basically the people behind this report in their tweets um, they're basically saying you know the NHS winter crisis this year is a drop in the ocean compared to what will happen if these trends continue and uh, they'd put a tweet out here and the graphs you should check out you know there it's, it's really interesting to see what's going on up to about the early 90s uh, the towns, the cities, the, the large towns, the villages, all kind of trundled along with their demographics increasing at the same sort of rate. And then, um, or at least, you know, in comparison to each other. And then, uh, as we've seen about the early 90s onwards, from a number of different factors, birth rates, death rates, immigration, you, you see it completely split apart and you've got cities going much younger and villages and towns becoming much older. Yeah, I'd, I'd also imagine a lot of it is to do with uh, the way in which the type of economy we have has changed, where the totally. type of economy we have now can't support like external towns. It has to be these big masses of activity. And I mean, like, why, what 
why would most young people want to stay in a small town? Exactly. When the... all the jobs are in cities, and all the jobs are in maintaining the like industries that are in cities. Like, how does how does one how does like how do town economies survive to a subsistence level if it's with working age people? I mean, we we use in terms of young people, old people a bit. It's really good to break down it by the ages. And if you read, I would uh, encourage people to go and read the report a little bit because it's quite interesting. You see, in particularly in the big cities, the biggest change are people of the age 25 to 44, massive increase, huge, huge increase. And then you could put that down to uh, immigration into the big cities because most most immigrants uh, end up in the big cities working there. Um, you could put that down to um, the factors you've just outlined, you know, young people moving to those areas. And you see basically 65 and over have increased in every single type of town and village, uh, large town, but they've actually gone down in cities. So you've got older people leaving cities since the early 90s and potentially immigration or whether it be young people coming in, increasing the, the younger demographics. So, well, I mean, what are you going to do on a fixed income? You can't afford the kind of rising rents that you have in cities. Yeah, exactly. So check that out. It's interesting. Lastly, I want to talk about something a little bit more local to where we're actually recording. We're in Brighton. There's a council by-election coming up soon. Oh, really? And uh, it's it's in a very safe Labour seat, Ward. It's East Brighton, vacated by the, the now MP for that area, stepping down as being the previous councillor. And it's like the Labour win it. Now, the other parties obviously see that, and they'll put up fairly young candidates because they know they're probably not going to win that seat. Sure. So they're not going to put an experienced person in there. You've got to toughen them up a bit. Yeah. A couple of dry runs. Exactly, exactly. So you've got Lib Dems putting in, I think, a 19-year-old, and you've got the Conservatives putting in a 21-year-old, but the Conservative candidate is who we really want to speak about in this segment because, well, it's come out, as reported by the Brighton Hove Independent, the uh, candidate, his name Edward Wilson, a 21-year-old student at the University of Sussex. We should also, just before we start to set the scene, I think we should probably, like, just... Imagine Jacob Rees-Mogg, exactly Jacob Rees-Mogg, but like 20 years younger. That is and his that face, is yeah. exactly what this guy looks like. It's terrifying. They must be cloning him now. Now, I left people on a cliffhanger there. Wrote a blog piece. Now, who, who is, what is this blog piece about? This, uh, this, this young, uh, up-and-coming, Rees-Mogg-esque lad? What has he written about? Well, he basically wrote a piece titled In the Defense of Enoch Powell, Why He Was Right on Immigration. We've got some quotes from it here. The original Rivers of Blood speech was one of controversy, but it is clear that the threat Enoch warned us about has become a nightmare we're currently living in. Britain has been gradually deteriorating through the sheer volume of immigration over recent years. And it goes on and on, and you can probably imagine what it is. It's your kind of classic, oh, uh, Enoch Powell was right, immigration, we're being overrun. They've ruined our economy and they've destroyed our culture where what started culture is constantly being destroyed and recreated and our economy is changing because of like vast material uh, difference like vast material changes and changes to the way in which global capital runs not due to there being more immigrants there you go we've got some more questions from here people are such gawping fucking what idiots. started as a river now has turned into a flood like all floods it has left economic ruin in the wake blah 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 it goes on now he's basically come out saying you know, guys, I don't actually believe this stuff. I just wrote it to be pr- provocative, you know, you know, uh. to stir debate. You know, we've got some quotes from here. He said, 
first and foremost, I did write this piece. I'm studying politics at the University of Sussex and in an organised, deliberately provocative academic setting, exploring aspects of difficult and far-reaching subjects. Yes, part of a, a free speech society. Therefore, to encourage debate within the free speech society... I bet that's a fucking picnic. You know exactly <laughs> the kind of... Like, people who would get kicked out of any other society for just being too bigoted. Exactly. I wrote a piece on Enoch Powell's vile rivers of blood speech. As you will know, this is a speech which caused great controversy and upset. I do not and never have supported the views of Enoch Powell. I simply believe at the time this would be a way to encourage debate on the topic of immigration, as this is a highly charged topic throughout the nation. What? Such a cop-out, man. It's so weak. Like, you wrote that shit. What to debate when he's just making assertion about how immigrants have destroyed our economy and changed the uh, changed the nature of our country? What healthy debate does he think is going to come from that? Yeah, it's this. This is every. I swear, every time they do this, it's just incredibly obvious that they're just covered covering from the fact that if you want to explain away the racial and like the racial and ethnic economic disparities in this country and in America and in the West in general. You, in order to portray that system as just, you have to be able to say that these like ethnic subaltern groups deserve to be like economically lesser, and so you come up with bigoted crap like this. This yeah. is how it's go. This is how it goes. This is how it's always gone. I bet if we ask this guy's thoughts on Charles Murray, he'll have very nice things to say. Exactly. It's that's who these people are. They need to pretend that there is nothing wrong with the system, so that we aren't. We aren't. We don't have a moral obligation to change it. You know, like I say, this might come as, come across as controversial. I would actually have more respect for this guy if he backs his like he backed what he said then. Yeah, now. probably. Because like, it's just so weak when people come like write all that stuff and go, oh, yeah, you know, I was just stirring the pot, you know, just trying to be controversial, you know, trying to be provocative and have some, yeah. you know. Because that requires no justification in these people's minds. Yeah. it's it's genuinely bizarre. Any kind of pot can be stirred at any time. Yeah. with anything. Like, if we're going to take that seriously, at a certain point, we need to actually, like, find a criteria for discussing, like, what if this is actually valuable? Because I, certainly in what he's outlined here, I can see nothing of value here. There's a million ways to have a conversation about immigration, and launching with, you know, Enoch Powell had it right, that's probably not the right way to do it. Let's move on quickly. I'm going to talk about an exclusive that was in The Independent. Here we go, let's just run into it. More than 280,000 public tip-offs on benefits fraud in the past two years have resulted in no action being taken against a claimant due to lack of evidence the independent can disclose. The revelation has led to claims the government is guilty of creating a witch hunt, with critics calling on ministers to re-evaluate contentious system, suggesting members of the public should not have a role in identifying and investigating fraud within the welfare state. I mean, who was surprised by this? It, it's, I mean, it's obscene, but do we have what percentage that is? It's consistently about 87 to 88% actually. I mean, yeah, that makes sense. Considering how demonized people uh, who, you know, uh, rely on the welfare state are in our society, it's absolutely no surprise to me that these fucking swivel-eyed, like, male-reading, like, twats are, you know, dobbing in their neighbors and fucking grassing on everyone based on entirely spurious suspicions about the kind of people they are. Yeah. Do we have statistics on the racial breakdown of these we, false claimants? We don't, actually, no. Ah, that would be interesting. Because I'm sure it's it's not completely... Um, I mean, you can probably guess what it would be like, but it wouldn't. It, it's not completely uh, uniform in terms of what's reported on each one. Uh, sometimes it's, it's crazy in detail. Things like eye colour and things like that that can even be reported. 
because um, they're trying to obviously catch people. Uh, but, you, you know, it's probably not consistent throughout each report isn't the same amount of information. But, I mean, this kind of... Who's to blame for this? Obviously, there's politicians that stoke this sort of stuff. But across the media, media, across the media, seen it. You know, Benefit Street was probably the epitome of that. The the program on Channel Four that fed completely into the kind of uh, misconceptions about how prevalent benefits fraud is. And it's not just immigration and benefits fraud and things like that. Um, We've got we've got uh, tons of issues where the public's perception is completely out of whack with what is is going on and this was i think i remember i remember a news report from this years ago well i say years ago a couple years ago and i remember it really sticking out for me because there was just tons and tons of things i think it was actually a quiz you could do on uh, like a major news site and you'd get through to the end and you'd realize you know even people who um are on the kind of sympathetic side of the spectrum for that political issue would still be overestimating the impact of it so people even th- people even on the left who might think that immigration isn't having an impact on society in a detrimental way, something like that. Um, even they would be overestimating the amount of immigration that is taking place. Sure. And, and it was immigration, you know, benefits fraud. It's apparently, you know, like 1% or half a percent or something, something like that. Sure. I guarantee that investigating, I would imagine that the 70 or 80% that were like false... Uh, lack, of evi- up, lack of evidence in some yeah, cases, or en- ended up co- costing more to investigate than was saved from the twenty percent, twenty to thirty percent exactly. that they did bring in. Exactly. The data, the data appears to show that members of the public are overestimating the issue of benefit fraud in Britain, and that the government's policy of using tip-offs is much less effective than many are led to believe. Sure, but it, it's not about actually making the system work or not work. It's about demonising the entire idea of a welfare state of the idea of having this foundation uh, from which people can grow a like genuine economic uh, independence yeah. and i think that it you know it just says a huge amount yeah. let's move on to ben bradley he's one of the new vice chairs of the conservative party and he's been put in charge uh, with young voters we've got an exclusive from buzzfeed that came out a few days ago and we're going to talk about it now it's been on across the other front pages of the newspapers as well this is what buzzfeed had to say The MP appointed by Theresa May to improve the Conservatives' appeal to young voters wrote a blog post claiming the UK would drown, quote, in a vast sea of unemployed wasters if people on benefits had too many children. We've got more. Ben Bradley is his name. He was appointed the vice chair of youth last week in the Conservative Party, used a 2012 blog post to support the controversial benefit cap introduced by the Conservative Lib Dem coalition. We've got more from it here. Quote, vasectomies are free, Bradley wrote on his personal blog, Cons Bradders 32, <laughs> in a post arguing that welfare cuts were vital to preserving British culture. Uh, here's another big quote from it here. Families who have never worked a day in their lives having four or five kids and the rest of us having one or two means it's not long before we're drowning in a vast sea of unemployed wasters. Does he think unemployment is genetic? He might, he might be implying that. Let's go on. And he says, a vast sea of unemployed wasters that we pay to keep, exclamation mark. Ian Duncan Smith's cap proposal is spot on, exclamation mark. So it's almost like he, he does think that. He, he thinks that if we, if we sterilise, you know, a lot, uh, basically all the people on benefits, we won't have to uh, give benefits anymore. That's basically what it is. There's also the outrage that, like, we, keep, we pay to keep all these children. As though it's like, we could just be letting them starve, you guys. Yeah, yeah. 
you know, we could we could just look after two and then say, you know, do you have any more kids? Well, you know, fuck them. You know, fuck them in every way. Doesn't matter if they exist or not. It's almost just like saying, um, they don't exist. Those curious. kids don't exist. We don't have to look after them. I'd be curious to know if Ian Duncan Smith feels like this is an excellent defense of his position. <laughs> if something's a step too far for Ian Duncan Smith in terms of welfare, then that's a step too far. Yeah. Like definitely. when he resigned over cuts to disability benefits, everyone's like, wait, what? <laughs> He has a limit? Yeah, he has a limit on that topic. I mean, it's a good job the Conservatives haven't been bogged down in any other eugenics controversies yeah. recently, or this would be really bad. This is the guy that's just been appointed to win over the youth vote. Yeah, yeah. And he's a guy that's... The youth vote that remains. He's, yeah. <laughs> the youth <laughs> Once vote. he's done cutting. Exactly. Uh, the, 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 the guy that is having his feet dipped into the pool of eugenics there, uh, to pardon the pun. Um, he's basically... The, uh, the gene pool, as it were. Ge- yeah, exactly. Uh, so the Conservative Party are screwed aren't they if they're putting people like this in charge to do things that probably arguably their most important task I would argue is getting back the support of the people that aren't voting for them at the moment that or the any political party that's that's what they've got to be doing the youth vote is probably the most important vote for the Conservatives right now in terms of a, a demographic to be gaining and to be winning a that or they've finally given up completely yeah. and they're just <laughs> uploading this fucking weirdo eugenicist like pseudo phrenologist guy yeah to be like yeah yeah yeah. well he, th- we don't want all these people inheriting the poverty gene remember this was the party that were saying as jeremy corbyn was elected uh you know oh they've had a lurch to the left they've moved away from the center ground and here comes david cameron parking his tanks on the lawn of the center ground <laughs> and we've got now basically conservatives They've got to bring back the youth vote. That's where they've got to really aim for. That's that's what they need to target. Just like it was said that Labour needed to target certain areas. Do you really think this looks like the Conservatives targeting the youth vote? I don't think it, it does at all. But uh, also, the reality is, this is young Conservatives these days. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the, the most Conservative so- economic uh, like policy has been so successfully integrated into the way we think about economics. Just neoliberalism is such the like until recently unquestioned status quo has just been in place for 40 years that they really don't have anything else it, in order to measure in order to counter the inequities here they only have appeals to like genetic failure yeah. and appeals to like well the problem is we haven't allowed the system to wash these people out entirely that's all they have and so the young the youth of the conservatives kind of these days only do occupy this very hard right bordering on it's, it's, like f- like fash inclined it's it's really interesting because like this is a demographic the the young the young vote that we're talking about right now that is more socially liberal than any other demographic in the uk right as is always the case yeah and it's just funny when we've got uh, a group of voters like that who are voting, you know, almost 70% in some cases, in some polls, for Labour. Uh, and then you've got, you guess, I guess, you know, the, a very small amount, sometimes 19% in some polls, sometimes less for the Conservatives. And you're thinking... Of, I'm amazed of, of, that of, high. Who are those people? Yeah. <laughs> I want to meet them and I want to hear their, like, shitty private I mean, school laughter. <laughs> of those 19%, you know, how many of those are activists? And then you've got 
basically here we are you know the people that are activists the MPs the, the candidates one in, one in five people I can't believe that one in five 20 year olds would vote Tory well it's one in five people who would be voting oh that's true so it's not it's, it discounts the don't knows the refused and all that's, that stuff like that's that that's true I guess so, so it's actually less yeah it's just that's in, it's just interesting how you've got the most socially liberal group of voters and then the activists on the Tory side of that are just like crazy like this sometimes yeah they're, they're really they're after Reese Mogg you know people like that because I mean there's always been like there's there's always been a place for I guess uh, you know maybe calling that... Nelson Mandela a terrorist or yeah. supporting the assassination of Patrice Lumumba or supporting uh, Pinochet but um, I mean the the right wing nowadays is I mean just recently they busted a young conservative group for being essentially like very inclusive for out and out fascists yeah. and then make jokes about being like and cap in the street fascist in the sheets this is this is the kind of person who this is the kind of young person who can still support conservative policy having had a generation of conservative defined policy result in a world that's a fucking nightmare for you're us right actually that's that's an interesting thing people that have grown up with the financial crash of 2008 uh, uh, and you know the kind of neoliberal era the whole of their lives and they're gonna have to be pretty pretty reactionary to not reject, yeah, yeah, yeah. reject that anyway i'm done with this story Let's move on. What you got? Cool. Uh, so what I've got is, unfortunately, fairly sad news. Uh, so, yeah, it's finally happening after a number of skirmishes, including a number of airstrikes uh, across the northern Syria border. Turkey is openly announcing its plans to attack the newly expanded Kurdish state of Rojava in the north of Syria. Uh, Turkey's president, Tayyip Erdogan, who, as we covered a couple of months ago, recently massively expanded his powers as president under a very, very obviously rigged referendum uh he's announced that the turkish military will confront the uh, the kurds in northern syria quote in the coming days claiming that they will purge terror from the region uh, this is pretty rich considering that turkey was famously reported as being isis fighters way into the caliphate a couple of years ago like you'd show up at a certain hotel and you'd be whisked across the border uh during the night uh and the turkish national intelligence organization uh the mit uh, was widely reported to either be looking the other way or actively facilitating this process, or even that Turkey has been a long-term ally of the rebel forces in Syria, many of which are comprised of, uh, like, Salafist militias, a lot of foreign fighters, a lot of Turkish grey wolves uh, filling out the ranks of the Syrian Free Army. Um, and, you know, a lot of these groups have ties to Al-Qaeda and uh, similar terrorist militias in particular, obviously. Uh, I think they're currently calling themselves Tahrir Asham, but the group that like were formerly Jabhat al-Nusra before they just there was just too much heat on that name. Um, now that said, there is a certain logic here, though it is tenuous. Uh, Rojava is run by the Democratic Union Party, a leftist Kurdish group, and its borders are secured by the People's Protection Units and the Women's Protection Units, the YPG and the YPJ respectively. Uh, now, these groups are considered by many to be sister organizations to the Kurdistan Workers' Party, or PKK, a Turkish-Kurdish uh, leftist party who've been active in armed resistance against the Turkish state since the mid-80s, which, for the purposes of mollifying the Turks, uh, the EU and the US is considered a terrorist group for some time now. Uh, and this has always actually been a point of contention in Turkish-Western relations, uh, that we have been openly supporting 
uh, the YPG and their uh, a later incarnation, the SDF, uh, for quite some time. Uh, they've been really, really effective in fighting ISIS. They were kind of the first people to really strike back a win against ISIS at that point in like 2011, 2012, where they were absolutely sweeping across that region. And there has been a question. Uh, are, the, are the YPG and the YPJ a sister organization? Or are they a completely separate group of leftist Abdullah Okalan inspired Kurdish fighters who just happened to find a bunch of guns in the mountains up north? It's been debated at length. Uh, but yeah, he's debated- he's also accused openly- semi-openly the US of working with terrorists due to their work with the Syrian Democratic Forces. Uh, now this militia is supposed to be separate from the YPG, it's not a Kurdish force. It's full of people who are ethnically Arab and Yazidi. Uh, it in no way obviously relates to the PKK. And so it's beside the point that it is formed and run by the YPG in collaboration with the US. Uh, and it's mostly the exact same communist Kurds who, for, uh, who formed the YPG. Uh, Erdogan himself said, A country we call an ally is insisting on forming a terror army on our borders. What can a terror army tur target but Turkey? The US now announced last week that it was working with the YPG to set up a 30,000 uh, 30, strong border force. Because of course it is, because everyone knows that Turkey is where all these foreign fighters are coming in from. We expect them to support Turkey in its legitimate efforts. This is what we have to say to our allies. Don't get in between us and terrorist organizations, or we will be not responsible for the unwanted consequences. Either you take your flag, either you take off your flags on these terrorist organizations, or we will have to hand those flags over to you. Our operations will continue until not a single terrorist remains along our borders, let alone three, uh, thirty thousand of them. Now, this is this is like fairly obviously. Uh, in reference to the U.S.'s activities specifically, and also uh, to the way in which the U.S. and also Russia have waylaid attacks against the YPG by saying, well, you can't bomb there, we have military advisors there because they're helping to fight ISIS. So, of course, you don't, you uh, in the uh, Justice and Development Party in Turkey don't support at all. Uh, but this is, like, them really laying out the supposedly that isn't going to stop them anymore of course it is he's talking big for his red state hick fan base but like he's not going to fucking start an international incident with the west considering how desperately his reign depends on western support uh but uh weirdly the syrian government who for some reason a lot of like leftists have been like weirdly supportive of in this rather than just admitting the Syrian group, aside from the Kurds, just doesn't really have anyone you can support. Uh, the Syrian government simultaneously stated that they were going to take on the YPG as well, seemingly with the backing of the Russians, who have also been working with the YPG to fight ISIS. Uh, so, once again, isn't it nice how, like, re revolutionary leftist groups are really bringing everyone together? Real, real peacemakers <laughs> there. So, uh, the US has responded by saying that it will be staying around to make sure that ISIS cannot reform in the chaotic element, uh, areas which still exist because of the Syrian civil war, even as that is being choked out. You've got, like, these, these weird Guardian articles bemoaning that the Syrian army is just about to take Idlib. Never mind that it's widely supported. Idlib is basically under Al-Qaeda control. Uh, Jabhat al-Nusra completely run it. There are posters with Bin Laden's face on them dotted all around the place. Coptic Christians and Druze keep disappearing 
uh, and no one knows and re or is really asking where they've gone. Life in Idlib is hell, and it's been a hell that's been inflicted upon them by these, like, largely foreign fighter-populated, uh, like, hardline Wahhabist militias. And so, like, fuck it, Idlib can go down. Like, the grotesque police state of, uh, like, Assad probably isn't worth supporting, but it's probably preferable to live under than, like, again, Al-Qaeda rule. And so, yeah, everyone has kind of assumed uh, that the US will sell out the Kurds the moment it seems opportune, because they have in the past. They did uh, with the Kurds in northern Iraq uh, in the early 90s. Uh, but this analysis always assumed a greater foothold with the rebels that never really happened, uh, because there was a sort of, like, mid-tier rebellion with the army. The CIA wanted everyone to get behind the rebels and, like, these hardline Wahhabists. There were, for some reason, a lot of Muslims coming down from the Caucasus parts of Russia, uh, and in particular, a lot of Chechnyans have been very high up in uh, ISIS and in a lot of these other militias. Uh, and, you know, it's generally considered the case that the CIA has, like, a sort of working relationship with some of these people left over from the various Chechen civil wars. And so the CIA wanted to get very involved with that, but basically the, the reporting suggests that the mid-tier of the army, like the officer class, went like, no, we don't want to work with these guys, they're fucking horrible, they're all Salafists, we know what happened when we trained up Salafists in Afghanistan uh, in the 80s, and it kind of came back to bites in the ass. We're going to fight with these uh, these uh, communist uh, Kurds, we really like them, they're really cool, That uh, we like hanging out with them. And so a lot of, uh, there has been a lot of genuine institutional investment uh, in the Kurds, and so um, right now, a lot of the traditional analysis has kind of stopped being quite so applicable. So it's it's going to be interesting to see how willing to push back the US is. Because the US has nuclear bases in Turkey. That's the thing that binds them to that. So there's only so far they can push the Turks. But they also do really seem to like the Kurds now. And they are very invested in that. And certainly in this country, a lot of foreign fighters who've gone over to fight for the Kurds, a lot of British leftists... Uh, who've gone over to uh, join the YPG, as well as a, a, a number of Americans, including Brace Bilden, aka Piss Pig Grandad, who uh, we discussed on this show in the past. I'm not sure if that would have been an airing episode. Uh, but yeah, so now we have just a couple of questions. Like, are the YPG, uh, like, something that can be directly applied to being allies with the PKK? Because they are... It, it is not the case that there are a bunch of Turkish Kurds across the border fighting. The Turkish Kurds are doing their own fighting in Turkey. Um, and, you know, how willing are we going to be to screw them? It's it's really a thing that no one can really pick out, uh, you know, exactly what the future is going to be. Aside from, essentially, that type Erdogan is dead. Like, as with most wars, this is largely about the domestic politics at play. Type Erdogan is going to use this as an opportunity to crack down against Kurds in Turkey more and more. And so, certainly that's going to be really fucking horrible. But the worst case scenario here really is a crackdown against Rojava, which for a lot of leftists has kind of really stood out as being this beautiful ray of hope in the Middle East. This one, like, good thing. This, like, wonderful, like, socialist, militant, feminist, like, radical radically ecological enclave of people genuinely looking at the patterns of like dysfunction in the past in the region and genuinely looking for an optimistic future way forward 
And I, I know a lot of other leftists have really found a lot of enthusiasm uh, in the Rojava project. Uh, and certainly it's something that is like something that I, I really look up to. And so my my desperate hope is that there is a possibility of these people being able to make a genuine like autonomous zone for themselves here uh, without being absolutely pulverized by the Turks. And if we see Turkish tanks rolling, I mean, you're probably not going to see us rolling across this, the Syrian border further into Kurdish territory. Um, I don't know what that I means. mean, Iraqi, Iraqi Kurds just lost a hell of a lot of territory yeah. recently uh, after the uh, the Peshmerga basically swept out the uh, popular mobilization forces there. Yeah. So, you know, they're the in other fronts, uh, Kurds have really like overplayed their hands. Fortunately, the Syrian Kurds look like they're much, much smarter uh, than the Iraqi Kurds. The uh, uh, the Bazani tribe, who've been kind of in control there uh, in Iraqi Kurdistan for a long time, uh, have actually kind of had their power really shaken. Uh, Prime Minister Bazani has actually had to resign. Uh, my hope is that the more leftist Talibani uh, group kind of take over the space left over there in uh, Iraqi Kurdistan. Uh, but in the meantime, like, Syrian Kurds have made such advances that it's been very easy to be very optimistic about them. And they seem smart, they seem very tactically savvy. And so my hope is that they're as prepared for the eventual American backstabbing that everyone assumed was going to come uh, as everyone hoped they would be. And so fingers crossed they'll be able to retain something and they'll be able to keep this beautiful little experiment that they've had going alive. Okay. That has been our show Off The Fence. I've been James Fox. I've been Alex Maskell. Thanks for listening. Soundcloud.com slash Off The Fence and connect with us on at Off The Fence Talk. Cheers. Cheers.